Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, today, sports is a multi-billion dollar industry. Football, basketball, soccer, baseball. I mean, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come to watch uh, these sports. They watch them on television. The athletes are making millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, their salary, plus there's the endorsement deals that go along with it. But here's the thing that this all started, this whole mega sports industry that we have today started with the super exciting sport that happened in the 19th century of competitive walking. Yes, I'm being serious. My guest today dug up this long forgotten sport that really kicked off the modern sport era. Uh, His name is Matthew Algio. He wrote a book called Pedestrianism, when watching people walk was America's favorite spectator sport. And it's just a fascinating look at a lost bit of American history that has a wider influence on sport today. Everything that we know about sport today with the endorsement deals, super high salaries, uh, super high payouts, thousands of people watching a sport. This all started with competitive walking, which is really bizarre. And it happened during the late 19th century, during a time that's sort of that I like. It's when you know boxing was coming to rise, John L. Sullivan, Teddy Roosevelt was coming to power. You had the rise of mass media, the rise of consumer culture, and all these things came together around competitive walking. Well, today on the podcast, Matthew Algio and I discuss this long forgotten sport and how it influences sport today. Uh, so really fun, interesting look into a forgotten bit of history. So without further ado, Pedestrianism with Matthew Algio. Matthew Algio, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you're welcome. So the reason I invited you, because I, I, I forgot where I heard about your book, but it's talking about this obscure sport that I knew nothing about, even though like Gilded Age America is one of my favorite parts of American history, right? You have the rise of prize fighting. You know, we got John L. Sullivan on the, the masthead of our website, Teddy Roosevelt, all this stuff. But I had no idea that there's a sport called pedestrianism, which is just basically walking, was the most yeah. popular sport in America for about 40 years. I'm curious, how did you come across this bit of forgotten American history? Well, uh, yeah, it's definitely been forgotten. Um, I was actually researching a book uh, about uh, eight or nine years ago about the 1943 merger of the Steelers and the Eagles. You might be aware of this. They were the Steagles for a season. Yeah. 
because in 1943, during World War II, the teams were so short of players, they had to merge two teams. So they merged the Steelers and the Eagles. So I was writing a book about the Steagles. And while I was researching that book, I you know, did some research on the history of spectator sports in the United States. And I'm like you. I'm a big fan of, uh, of the Gilded Age. I, I, I love the 1890s, the 1880s. And I was uh, blown away to realize that uh, when I was researching the history of spectator sports, that in the 1880s and 1890s, this sport of pedestrianism was the most popular spectator sport in the United States. People, thousands, tens of thousands of people would fill arenas to watch guys walk around a dirt track for days at a time. And this was just the most entrancing, fascinating thing that was going on in the Gilded Age. And people bet on this. I mean, it's funny right now we have all this controversy about, uh, you know, uh, uh, fantasy sports and, and, and online betting with fantasy sports. I mean, this was the original fantasy sport. People would bet on anything about these guys. Who would be the first to walk 100 miles? Who would be the first to drop out of the race? It was just like the most amazing spectator sport in the United States states for like you said a real short period of time but for that period of time in the 1880s and 1890s it ruled yeah and like newspapers or like the new york times would write about it uh the national police gazette uh we've talked about a bit about that on the the show and the, the website before wow. they were they loved it they loved the 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 the, the pedestrianism because it. it was yeah. like it was like a freak of nature i mean it was what it really was what it came down to Sort of. Well, I mean, one of the one of the the most popular form of pedestrianism was the six day race. Okay, so guys would walk for six days. Beginning, you, you couldn't because back then, of course, on Sundays you couldn't have any entertainment. Yeah, blue laws. Blue laws, exactly. And so uh, the races would begin right after midnight Monday morning, and then continue right up until midnight Saturday night. So it was six days long, and during this time, you would have the newspapers uh, covering the event. They would be posting updates all over, all over the city on billboards, and uh, and people would just be following it. They would they would have extra editions of the newspapers published to show who was in front, you know, who was who was leading at that at that time of the day on Monday morning, on Tuesday afternoon, on Wednesday afternoon, and so it really was just an amazing cultural phenomenon at the time. Yeah. So you said uh, it was a high stakes game, like lots of money was, we'll talk about how much the pri the purses were for these competitions. It was insane. Um, but the gambling that was involved, but like what's funny about pedestrianism is that it got started on a bet. Is, tell us a little bit about the story of how pedestrianism sure. got its start. Sure. Um, it was the 1860 presidential election. And of course, Abraham Lincoln was the Republican candidate in 1860. And uh, there were about three other... <laughs> Three other candidates. The Democratic Party was split. But there was a guy in uh, Boston, a guy named Edward Payson Weston, and he bet a friend that Lincoln would lose the election in 1860. And of course, Lincoln wins the election in 1860. Uh, the terms of the bet, though, were unusual. Weston had to walk from Boston to Washington uh, in time to see the election, or in time to see the inauguration of Lincoln in uh, March of 1861. And uh, so Weston did this walk. It's the middle of winter. He's walking from Boston to Washington, and it really caught the nation's attention. Uh, he became a very popular figure in the in the media. The newspapers covered this walk. Would would would, pay, would uh, Weston make it to Washington in time to see Lincoln's inauguration? Uh, Weston actually was about four hours late to the inauguration. He didn't win the bet. 
um, well, he, he lost the bet. He didn't, he didn't fulfill the wager, but he became such a sensation that people all over the country uh, wanted to see Weston walk. I mean, it blows your mind, but people came out, you know, just to see him walk through their town when he was doing this walk from Boston to Washington. And he figured, well, there's got to be a way I can monetize this. And so uh, he started taking his act on the road and he walked indoors in roller skating rinks. He tried to walk 100 miles in 24 hours, that sort of thing. And uh, that's how he became a very famous pedestrian. He started the whole idea of competitive walking in the United States. And he, he was actually a showman, uh, which I thought was really interesting. He wasn't really much of an, I guess he was an athlete because he was able to do these things, but he, he brought a bit of showmanship into, into the sport. I like to say he was the uh, he was the Abraham Lincoln. He was the Muhammad Ali of the 1870s. He he understood just instinctively the connection between entertainment and sports. So he would say, for instance, he would walk a hundred miles in 24 hours, which is really an incredible feat. Um, it's it's hard to do even today, uh, but when he did it. He wore long velvet coats and he always carried a cane and he wore a top hat and he always had a, you know, he wore a necktie or a cravat. He understood that you had to play to the crowd. He really had, I mean, it was almost ahead of its time in the way he understood that you really had to entertain at the same time that you were performing an athletic feat. Like I say, it's 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 a lot like Muhammad Ali. Yeah, and this was the uh, during the Gilded Age. This is really when mass media was starting, and I guess he was one of those first people who intuitively understood the power of mass media. I think Teddy Roosevelt was like a president, the first president that really understood the power of mass media. And I guess Weston was the first athlete who understood the power of mass media to catapult him to to fame and riches. Yeah, and it's funny. I'm I'm actually I'm working on a book about Roosevelt right now and how he played the media. Uh and uh Weston really he played the media so well. And I don't mean that in a negative way. He 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 knew that the picture on the front page of the paper was more dramatic if he was wearing a long flowing coat and carrying his, you know, gold-topped cane. I mean, he he really understood how uh entertainment worked how uh, sports worked, how business worked. I mean, he was one of the first athletes to really become uh, interested, invested in his own business. He, 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 you know, negotiated his own contracts. I mean, this was unheard of at the time. Most athletes were uh, sort of led along by guys who took advantage of them. But Weston wasn't like that. He was kind of the first generation of athletes who really uh, – you know, knew how to capitalize on their fame. So how did it transition? How did it start from, uh, you know, Weston doing this bet basically to right. walk to all the way to Washington, DC right. and transform into this thing where it was, there was competitive leagues, like there were matches and, and money was at stake. How did that transition happen? And here's the other, like, why did it, why did it happen? What sort of cultural forces were going on at the time that allowed pedestrianism to be the most popular spectator sport in America? Well, uh, uh, really one of the things was that roller skating became very popular. 
and the uh, roller skate was invented, the kind we know today with the four wheels on the bottom that you can lean and turn, and roller skating rinks popped up all over the country. And these were really kind of the first enclosed public spaces. Uh, and so there were these venues that were sitting there with uh, nothing to do except roller skating. And Weston, who had just walked from Boston to Washington, realized that all these people wanted to watch him walk. And all these roller skating rinks were out there. And so he would go to a roller skating rink and he'd set up a, a track and it might be 50 laps to a mile. I mean, these were tiny little roller skating rinks. But he, he would go in there and he would charge people 10 cents to go watch him walk 100 miles in, 20, uh, in 24 hours, that sort of thing. So it was, it was this weird convergence of indoor spaces and, uh, and, and, and Weston, people like him, seeing how they could capitalize on these indoor public spaces for the first time. And you also have to remember at the time, we're talking about after the Civil War, for the first time, people have a little extra money in their pockets. Uh, you see industrialization coming in. People have a little extra time on their hands, extra time, extra money. These indoor roller skating rinks, Edward Pace and Weston traveling around the country, walking 100 miles in 24 hours, all over the all over the country, and so all these things came together and sort of turned what was this weird bet that he could walk from Boston to Washington uh, into a professional sport. Yeah, and I guess at the time baseball was just getting started, so that wasn't a factor. They weren't competing with baseball. Uh, prize fighting was around, but that was uh, an underground sport and looked down upon. So, right, walking. And you also have to oh, you have ahead. to remember, like baseball. Baseball uh, sort of had a, sol- uh, a bad reputation. Uh, boxing, of course, had a bad reputation. Uh, pedestrianism was a wholesome sport. It was walking. <laughs> what could be more wholesome than walking? And so really it was this void that uh, Weston filled when he started going around the country staging these walking exhibitions that said, uh, you know, you could bring the family. It was family entertainment, five or ten cents a person. And uh, you could take the family to go see it. You would never take the family to go see John L. Sullivan. And even baseball at the time had a bad reputation. And and so it really was the first family entertainment, uh, mass entertainment in the United States in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. So uh, besides having these expeditions where people would pay to watch, uh, it it evolved to becoming a a sport where there were like belts, like they created a belt system, right? Like prize fighting. Right, Um, right. Can you talk a little about what I thought was just mind-boggling was the amount of money, uh, the, the purses that these uh, pe- these walkers, these pedestrians could win. Can you talk a little about some of the, the prizes that were won by some of these athletes? Right. So, uh, so you got Weston and he's going out, he's walking these exhibitions. And of course, people see how much money he's making and competitors arise naturally. And the biggest competitor was a guy named Daniel O'Leary. He was an Irish immigrant, and uh, he figured, well, if Weston can walk 100 miles in 24 hours, I can walk 105 miles in 24 hours. And eventually they met in a race, and it was a six-day race, as we mentioned earlier. That was as long as you could race. Uh, And uh, the first big race was in Chicago. But this sort of morphed into these six-day races involving 
all sorts of competitors from the United States and from Great Britain. And uh, as you mentioned, the, 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 uh, the, the, the payouts on these races were tremendous because think about it. It's a six-day race. Uh, you're at the first Madison Square Garden. Um, they might have 10,000 seats, but it's continuous. It's for six days. And so people are coming and going constantly. So you could have 500,000 people maybe come and see this race over the course of a week because you might come in and see it for five minutes and leave. And so everybody was paying 50 cents or a dollar a ticket. The winner of the race might receive Twenty-five, thirty, forty thousand dollars, which today is a million dollars. I mean, this is for six days' work. <laughs> Whoever won would get a million dollars for six days' work. This actually stands up to what you see for professional athletes today. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because a million dollars for a week is fifty million for a year. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good baseball player right there, even today. And besides the, the the payouts, did some of these athletes get sponsorship deals like modern athletes do? Yeah. Um, what was interesting, you mentioned the Police Gazette before. Uh, you guys know all about the Police Gazette. Yeah. Um, but they were one of the big sponsors because they covered the races. People, people who subscribed to the Police Gazette loved pedestrianism. And so uh, they had a guy that they paid, uh, I think, $2,000 to wear the – wear a shirt that just had the Police Gazette logo on it during a race. Oh, wow. And so you had, uh, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned Dan O'Leary earlier. Uh, he was the spokesperson for a brand of salt. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I need to, to re-salt, I use tiger salt, yeah. you know. Um, so these guys, they were some of the first uh, uh, athlete spokesman in, in, in the United States. It, it was really uh, is the beginning of this whole sports industrial complex. Yeah. And they were also the first on um, sports cards, right? Like the cigarette yeah. cards. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, cigarette cards really came out, started beginning in the 1870s and 1880s. And uh, I've got a couple of them uh, the, some of the first athletes featured on these sporting cards were pedestrians. Uh, and uh, Frank Hart, uh, who was actually one of the first famous black athletes in the United States, he was an African-American who won a couple of major pedestrian events. He's probably the first African-American ever featured on a trading card in the United States. Um, all these guys are forgotten now. Nobody remembers them. Um, that's probably not why nobody's buying my book, but uh, <laughs> but but, uh, but I, I really think that they they were they were the, a huge part of American sports history, and I really think they need to be remembered. Yeah, tell us a little more about Frank Carr because I thought this was really interesting. I mean, this was uh, before uh, I guess Plessy v. Ferguson. Um, yes, and uh, you know, people always had this idea that that sports and it was has always been segregated, segregated. But there was a time right before Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, when separate um, but equal was the law of the land, where you had black athletes who were competing and doing really well uh, in competitive sports in America. Can you tell us a little bit more about Frank Hart? Yeah, and there were even black athletes. There were black baseball players in the in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties. You're right. Plessy v. Ferguson ended everything. It ended it, it ended any kind of integration that was going on. The beauty of pedestrianism was that anybody who could walk could do it. And 
almost everybody can walk. Black people can walk. Chinese people can walk. White people can walk. It was amazing the variety of people you had in pedestrian events because anybody who could walk could take part. And it didn't matter what your race was, what your color was. And this was a – people tend to forget this, that, that in the Gilded Age, you had this weird period between Reconstruction – Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show, get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. 
Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And Plessy v. Ferguson, as you mentioned, where there was a wide open field, really. I mean, I, I make the argument in the book that things were a lot better for African-American athletes between Reconstruction and Plessy v. Versus Ferguson than they were between Plessy and, you know, Jackie Robinson. I mean, black, black people could take part in sporting events with white people. And Frank Hart was one of those people, an African-American, who took part in these events. And uh, he won several six-day races. His picture was on the front page of the New York newspapers. I mean, it, it was amazing for an African-American at that time uh, to do what he did. And it's a shame that uh, he couldn't, you know, that... It, it really ended with Plessy versus Ferguson. Yeah, and he won a lot of money too. Um, like he, and these guys won so much money. Um, you really don't appreciate, but like, uh, you know, winning twelve, fifteen thousand dollars in eighteen eighty nine was like winning half a million dollars today. Yeah, and really, for six days' work, you could take half a million dollars home. If these guys won two races a year, they won a million dollars a year. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess something we haven't really talked about is uh, how these races actually went down. So a lot of more six-day races, but they weren't walking continuously for six days. Um, how, how did the, the whole walking match occur? And what were some of the rules that uh, governed these um, events? Okay. For a walking match, strictly, uh, one foot had to be on the ground at all times. Heel toe, heel toe, just like today for, you know, you have these walking uh, uh, in the Olympics, you have uh, 10, 50 kilometer walking matches. Um, so you see the way people walk that sort of funny swiveling their hips kind of walk. That's how people walked. Um, but the match will begin, as I mentioned earlier, right after midnight on Monday morning. Uh, typically, it would continue right up until uh, midnight on Saturday night. There would be tents erected in the middle of the uh, middle of the track. There'd be a dirt track on the floor. It'd be maybe an eighth or a seventh of a mile around. It'd be inside an arena. Almost always, these were indoor events, and uh, whoever walked the most miles over those six days would be the winner. You could you could stop whenever you wanted. You could go rest in your tent. Uh, most people ate while they walked. They might eat some greasy eel broth or something like that. It wasn't really the kind of you know nutrition that that people take today. 
but whoever walked the most miles in six days was the winner. That was the most common race, the six-day race. Gotcha. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting how they uh, uh, kept themselves. You know, some of the things they did, you know, you mentioned the, the greasy eel broth, but I guess champagne was like a really popular drink yeah. to, to keep you going. They, they thought uh, They thought alcohol was a stimulant. And uh, so a lot of guys would drink a lot of alcohol and uh, then sometimes literally fall off the track. It was just amazing that it it took them a while to figure out that you probably shouldn't be drinking during the race. But the guys who who took it most seriously, really, they did training. I mean, we, I, I, you know, I tend to, you know, make fun of them or whatever. But the guys who were very serious about it. they did a lot of training. They did a lot of running, a lot of jogging, that sort of thing. I mean, they were athletes on a par with the athletes of today. Well, speaking of how pedestrianism really laid the foundation of modern sport in America, you talk about how pedestrianism had America's first doping scandal. Not that this was really funny, too. So- <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, Edward Payson Weston, who we had mentioned earlier, he took part in a in a race in the UK, uh, and uh, it was discovered that he was uh, chewing coca leaves, and uh, this was, of course, a stimulant. Uh, but at the time, there were no rules. I mean, this was p- one of the problems with pedestrianism, and one of the reasons it died is that there was no governing body of pedestrianism. Mm. There was no commissioner of pedestrianism. There was, you know, not nobody to really to take control of the sport. And so when Weston was found to be chewing these coca leaves, uh, uh, there was nobody to enforce any rule to say it was wrong. There's nobody to uh, tell him that uh, he should be expelled from the sport, that sort of thing. And so it really sort of just went it just went it just went by that uh, Weston got away with this. He he later insisted that it gave him no competitive advantage. But of course that's what everybody says when they uh when they, chew coca leaves, I yeah, guess. When they get caught, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned, okay, there was a lack of organ, uh, an organizing body that led to the decline, but what other factors led to the decline of ped- pedestrianism and why was it forgotten from American history? Wow. Well, you know, baseball really, uh, you know, I mentioned that pedestrianism had no commissioner. Well, baseball in 1876, uh, the owners of baseball teams organized the National League, and baseball really became the American pastime within 10, 20 years of that. Uh, They had a commissioner. They could uh, oversee the sport. They could wipe out gambling. uh, They could maintain the integrity of the sport. Pedestrianism had nothing like that. Uh, Also, the invention of the bicycle. Remember the old time 19th century bicycle is that kind with the big, huge front wheel. Yeah. And that, that hipsters and drive around. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I saw that on Gawker recently, but anyway, yes. So the hipsters who drive these big bicycles around, but those were very hard to race. They weren't very nimble. The invention of the safety bicycle in the 1880s, that's the bicycle we drive today with the two same size wheels and the drive chain. Well, that was much more interesting to watch race for six days than people walking around a track. 
And so the combination of baseball and the bicycle really eliminated pedestrianism from from the you know sporting scene in the United States. People uh, just stopped watching it, moved on to other sports, moved on to more interesting things. As for, as for why they're forgotten, um, I don't know. I mean, why would you remember who people? You know, why why would you remember people who walked? I, I don't know. <laughs> but I thought it was. <laughs> Excuse me. I thought it was interesting too. Towards the end of its heyday, uh, it like moral crusaders started going after pedestrianism, much in the same way they went after prize fighting or bullfighting yeah. or cockfighting. Well, one of the one of the most entertaining things about watching a six day race was going in to watch day number five or six, because people the competitors would be so bedraggled they would be so worn out they'd almost be dead on their feet i mean that was the exciting thing was to go watch these people after five or six days of continuously walking uh what they would look like how they would behave and so uh, there were crusaders morality crusaders and they were aligned with the temperance movement who came in and said uh this is uh you know, making fun of these people. This is, it's like a, it's like a exhibitionism. Uh, it's, it's, it's uh, immoral to watch these people after five or six days. And so there was a, the weight of this crusade came down on pedestrianism and uh, it really had a hard time recovering from that. Yeah. So we, we forgot about pedestrianism, um, but it did lay the groundwork for modern sports as far as its connection to mass media, its connection to gambling, uh, the connection to you know athletic sponsorships. But I'm curious, I mean, I think you mentioned Olympic walking. Is that a remnant of pedestrianism? It is. Um, walking is one of the very few sports that has been in the Olympics continuously since the very first Olympics in, what was it, 1896? I yeah. forget. Um, um, but I think really you see, and I don't think it's a stretch to say pedestrianism, really you see it more in even Major League Baseball or the NFL where the idea of capitalizing on an athletic event, uh, pedestrianism was one of the first sports to figure out a way to monetize itself. Um, there were sponsorships. Uh, there was there were championships. Um, there were all sorts of different ways to make money, and that's all what sports is about today: yeah. <laughs> making money. And uh, pedestrianism was the first sport, I really think, you know, because the other sports were sort of under the radar, boxing and and uh, baseball. I mean, uh, they were kind of either for gentlemen or for ruffians. But pedestrianism was the first sport that was for the general populace. And uh, they figured out a way to make money. That's, I'm curious, did writing this book, like, did you start walking more? Because they're like, I'm going to I'm going to try doing one of those feats or did like, did you start walking more? Because it was like, after reading, I was like, I'm going to start walking more. I encourage you to attempt a 24 hour race. I actually did a 24 hour race. Uh, people came up to me and said, have you ever done this? No, 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 no. So, uh, actually last year in uh, October, 
I did a uh, 24-hour race in New Jersey, and I walked it. Just walk for 24 hours. See how far you go. And uh, I did 51 miles. So I am proud to say that, yes, <laughs> after all that, I was, uh, I was inspired to, to, uh, to attempt a 24-hour race. Very good. I'm going to have to give that a try. I'm going to do it. You know, and, but that's half. That's yeah. half of what Weston did or O'Leary did or Frank Hart did. They would walk 100 miles in a day. That's crazy. And so, you know, I mean, your basic walking speed is about four miles an hour. So just go walk, but not stop for 24 hours and you're not at 100 miles. So, <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to give it a try and I'm going to challenge everyone out there who's listening to, to go try this too. Uh, we're going to get some, some records on here <laughs> so we can be beat it's Weston. Really cool. the, the, the races are a lot of fun. There's... Um, it's really cool that, you know, uh, ultra marathons are not for regular people, but 24 hour races, those, those kinds of races, a regular person can do it because there's no did not finish. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody finishes. Yeah. So it's really, it's really a lot of fun. Very good. Well, Matthew Algio, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, Brad, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. My guest today was Matthew Algio. He's the author of the book, Pedestrianism, and you can find that on amazon.com. Go get it. It's a fun, quick little read, and you're going to find out a bit about American history that a lot of people don't know about. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast or tell a friend about the show. I'd really appreciate that. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.